We're beginning a new sermon series this morning, and I, I thought it would be easier than it turned out to be. I'm going to be preaching sermons first preached by John Wesley. And of course, he's a 1700s Englishman, and so I had to translate it into contemporary English and then put it in a way that I could say it. And uh, it was a lot of work. I learned a lot of new phrases uh, and words I did not know. And I also learned about John Wesley something that I should have known, and that is that he bled scripture almost every sentence in this sermon is either a reference to or a quotation of a scripture passage. So uh, I brought it into contemporary translation, but it's, it's, it's a little dense at times because all he's doing is quoting scripture. But this is a sermon that he first preached at St. Mary's Oxford on August 24th, 1744, and it's called Scriptural Christianity, and I was blessed this week to live in it. I hope that you will be too. Wesley began with a quotation from Ezekiel. He said, Someone who hears the sound of the horn but does not take warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. And the primary passage today that we'll be discussing is Acts chapter 4, verse 31. It says this, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The same expression occurs in the second chapter of Acts, which we read this morning. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all, the apostles with the women and the mother of Jesus and his brothers, together in one place. And suddenly a noise like a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues that looked like fire appeared to them, distributing themselves, and a tongue rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And one immediate effect of this was that they began to speak with different tongues as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out, insomuch that both the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, and other strangers who came together were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. In Acts chapter 4, we read that when the apostles and the others gathered with them had been praying and praising God, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there was no visible appearance at that time as there had been in the earlier time. Nor are we told that the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit were then given to any of them. None of them were given gifts of healing or miracle working or prophecy or the discerning of spirits or speaking in diverse tongues or the interpretation of tongues. Whether these gifts of the Holy Spirit are intended by God to remain uh, throughout all the ages or whether they are simply to be restored at the end before the fullness of all things comes, those are questions we don't need to decide. But we should observe that even in the infancy of the church, God divided those gifts with a sparing hand. Were all prophets in the first century? Were all workers of miracles? Did all have gifts of healing? Did all speak in tongues? No, maybe not one in a thousand. Probably none but the teachers in the church, and only some of them. It was, therefore, for a more excellent purpose than this, that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It was to give them what no one can deny to be essential to all Christians in all ages, the mind which was in Christ. Those holy fruits of the Spirit, which whoever does not have them, does not belong to Christ. To fill them with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, and self-control. To endow them with faith, maybe a better word would be fidelity, with meekness and the moderation of their appetites, to enable them to crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts, its passions and desires, and as a result of that inward change, to fulfill all outward righteousness, to walk as Christ had walked, in the work of faith and labor of love and perseverance of hope. So without concerning ourselves then in idle curiosity about the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, let's take a closer look at the Spirit's ordinary fruits, which we are assured will remain through all generations. At that great work of God among the children of humanity, which we express with one word, Christianity. Not as it applies to a set of opinions or a system of doctrines, but as it refers to human hearts and to human lives. It may be helpful to consider Christianity from three perspectives. First, as it begins to exist in individuals. Second, as it spread from one person to another. And finally, as it covers the whole earth. And having discussed these, I intend to conclude with a plain and practical application. First, let us consider Christianity in its rise as it begins to exist in the hearts of individuals. Imagine then that one of those who heard the Apostle Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in which he preached repentance and remission of sins was convicted in his heart, was convinced of his sin, repented on that day and believed in Jesus. We know there were 3,000 who did that. By this faith in the work of God, which is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen, he instantly received the spirit of adoption, by which he now could cry, Abba, Father. Now by the Holy Spirit he could call Jesus Lord, the Spirit himself bearing witness with his spirit that he was a child of God. Now he could truly say, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This then would have been the very essence of his faith a divine evidence or conviction of the love of God the Father, through the Son of his love, to him, a sinner, now accepted in Jesus. And having been justified by faith, he now would have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Even more, the peace of God would rule in his heart, a peace which beyond all understanding would keep his heart and mind from all doubt and all fear, through the knowledge of the one in whom he had then come to believe. He could not, therefore, be afraid of any evil news, for his heart would stand fast believing in the Lord. He would not fear what any other human could do to him, because he would know that the very hairs of his head were numbered. He would not fear the powers of darkness, whom God would be daily crushing under his feet. Even more, the fear of death would become the least of all of his fears. Instead, he would confess with the Apostle Paul that now he had the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. For since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives." 
This one's soul, therefore, would magnify the Lord, and his spirit would rejoice in God his Savior. He would have rejoiced in Jesus with unspeakable joy, for Jesus had reconciled him to God, and in Jesus he would have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his wrongdoings, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. He would have rejoiced in the witness of God's spirit with his spirit that he was a child of God, and more abundantly in hope of the glory of God, in hope of the glorious image of God, and full renewal of his soul in righteousness and true holiness, and in hope of that crown of glory, that inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will never fade away. The love of God would also have been poured out within his heart through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Because he was now a son, God would have sent the spirit of his son into his heart, crying out, Abba, Father. And that parental love of God would have been continually increased by the witness that he had in himself of God's pardoning love to him. By seeing how great a love the Father has given him that he would be called a child of God. God would have become the desire of his eyes, and the joy of his heart, his inheritance both now and forever. And one that loved God in these ways could not help but love his brothers and sisters, and not love with word or tongue only, but in deed and in truth. If God so loved us, he would have said, we also ought to love one another. Yes, we must love every single person, for the Lord God is good to all, and his mercies are over all of his works. In agreement with these things, this lover of God would have embraced all of humankind for God's sake, not ignoring those he had never met personally or those of whom he knew nothing more than that they were the offspring of God for whom Christ died, not ignoring the evil and the ungrateful, and especially not ignoring even his enemies, those who hated or persecuted or despitefully used him. All of these he would have embraced for his master's sake. Each of these would have had a special place, both in his heart and in his prayers. He would have loved them, even as Christ had loved us. And love does not brag, and it's not arrogant. Love brings the knees of all those in whom it dwells into the dust. Similarly, this man would have been lowly of heart, little, mean, and vile in his own eyes. He would neither have sought nor received the praise of people, but only that which comes from God. He would have been meek and long-suffering, gentle to all, and easy to ask favors of. Faithfulness and truth would never be far from him. These things would be bound around his neck and written on the tablet of his heart by the same Spirit. He would be enabled to be temperate in all things, controlling himself as though he had been weaned from excess as a child is weaned from milk. He would have confessed with the Apostle Paul, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, now living beyond the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. By the same almighty love, he would have been saved both from passion and from pride, both from lust and from vanity, both from ambition and from covetousness, and from every state of heart and mind that was not in Christ Jesus. Of course, a person who had this love in his heart would work no evil against his neighbor. It would have been impossible for him purposefully and intentionally to do harm to any person. 
He would have been at the greatest distance from cruelty and wrong, from any unjust or unkind action. With the same care, he would have set a guard over his mouth and kept watch over the door of his lips, that he might not offend by his speech, either against justice or against mercy or against truth. He would have put away all lying, all falsehood and fraud. Neither would deception be found in his mouth. He would have spoken evil of no person, nor would an unkind word have ever come out of his lips. And as he would have been deeply aware of the truth of Jesus' teaching, apart from me you can do nothing, and consequently of his own need to be watered by God daily, so he would have continued daily in all the ordinances of God, which are the stated channels of God's grace to humanity. Namely, the apostles' teaching, he would have received eagerly that food of the soul, in the breaking of bread, which he would have found in the communion of the body of Christ, and in the prayers and praises offered up by the great congregation. And in these ways, he would have daily grown in grace, increasing in strength in the knowledge and love of God. But it would not have satisfied him simply to abstain from doing evil. His soul would have been eager to do good. The language of his heart would have been continually, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. My Lord went about doing good, and I will follow his example. As he had opportunity, therefore, if he could do no good of a higher kind, he would have fed the hungry, clothed the naked, helped the fatherless or stranger, visited and assisted them that were sick or were in prison. He would have given all his goods to feed the poor. He would have rejoiced to work or to suffer for them, and in whatever way he might have benefited another person. In those cases especially, he would have denied himself. He would have thought of nothing as too dear to part with for them. He would have remembered the word of his Lord who said, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. This was Christianity in the beginning. Such was every Christian in ancient days. Such was every one of those who, when they heard the threats of the chief priests and elders, were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. In this way, the love of him in whom they had believed constrained them to love one another. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. So fully were they crucified to the world and the world crucified to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each to the extent that any had need. Having considered Christianity and its rise as beginning to exist in individuals, now secondly, let us consider Christianity in its spread from person to person and so gradually making its way around the world. For this was God's will for it, who did not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, that it might give light to all who were in the house. Jesus himself had declared this to his first disciples by teaching, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And at the same time, he gave them the general command, your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so let's suppose that a few of these people who were committed to loving humankind the way Jesus instructed them saw that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Can we believe that they would be unconcerned 
at the misery of those for whom their Lord died? Wouldn't their compassion and mercy overwhelm them? And even if Jesus gave them no command, could they really stand by idly? Instead, would they not work by all possible means to pluck some of these brands out of the burning? Of course they would. They would endure whatever must be endured to bring back whoever they could of those poor straying sheep to the shepherd and guardian of their souls. And the Christians of old did just this. They worked as they had opportunity to do good to all people, warning them to flee from the wrath to come. Now, now to escape the damnation of final judgment. They declared, so having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to humankind that all people everywhere are to repent. They cried out, turn, turn from your evil ways so that wrongdoing does not become a stumbling block to you. They reasoned with them of righteousness or justice, of the virtues opposed to their reigning sins, of self-control and of the judgment to come, of the wrath of God which will surely be executed on evildoers on that day when he will judge the world. In these ways, they endeavored to speak to every person individually according to that person's need. To the careless, to those who lay unconcerned in darkness and in the shadow of death, they thundered, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. To those who were already awakened from sleep and groaning under a sense of the wrath of God, their language was, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Meanwhile, they provoked those who had believed to love and to good works, to patient endurance in doing good, and to abound more and more in that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And their labor in the Lord was not in vain. His word ran and was glorified. It grew mightily and prevailed. But so much more did the offenses prevail. The world in general was offended because they had testified about it that its deeds were evil. Pleasure-seeking people were offended, not only because these Christians were made, as it were, to reprimand them, but much more because so many of their companions were taken away and would no longer run with them in the same excesses of debauchery. People of high office and high esteem were offended because as the gospel spread, they declined in the esteem of the people and because many no longer dared give them flattering titles or to give them the respect due only to God. Salespeople and retailers called one another together and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that these men have persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people so that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute. Above all, religious people were offended and ready at every minute to cry out, Men of Israel, help, for we have found these men a public menace and ones who stir up dissensions throughout the world. These are the men who instruct everyone everywhere against our people, our religious beliefs, and our religious institutions. Thus it was that the heavens grew black with clouds and the storm gathered in great haste. For according to those who rejected Christianity, the more it spread, the more hurt was done. And the number of those who were more and more enraged at these people who have upset the world increased, insomuch that more and more cried out, away with such people from the earth, for they should not be allowed to live. And in so doing, many sincerely believed that they were offering a service to God. 
Meanwhile, these offended parties did not fail to scorn their name as evil, so that this sect was spoken against everywhere. People spoke all kinds of evil against them, just as had been done to the prophets who came before them. And whatever any person would say about them, others would believe, so that offenses grew as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And then came, at the time foreordained by the Father, all kinds of persecution against them. Some Christians suffered only shame and reproach for a season. Others suffered the seizure of their property. Others experienced mocking and flogging and further chains and imprisonment. And others resisted to the point of shedding blood. Now it was that the pillars of hell were shaken, and the kingdom of God spread more and more. Sinners everywhere were turned from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. He gave his children such eloquence and wisdom which none of their adversaries were able to oppose or refute, and their lives were of equal force with their words. But above all, their sufferings spoke to the world. They commended themselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in difficulties, in beatings, in imprisonments, in mob attacks, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst often without food, in cold and exposure. And when, having fought the good fight, they were led as sheep to the slaughter and offered up as sacrifices in service of their faith, then the blood of each of them found a voice. And the heathen said, though he is dead, he still speaks. In these ways, Christianity spread upon the earth. But how soon did the weeds appear in the wheat? And the mystery of iniquity work as well as the mystery of godliness. How soon did Satan find a seat, even in the temple of God, until the woman fled into the wilderness and the faithful again became few and lowly upon the earth? Here again, we walk a well-worn path. The ever-increasing corruptions of the succeeding generations have been largely described in seasons throughout history by those witnesses God raised up to remind us that he had built his church upon a rock and the gates of Hades would not overpower it. But shall we not see greater things than these? Yes, greater than those things which have occurred since the beginning of the world. Can Satan cause the truth of God to fail? or his promises to be of no effect? If not, then the time will come when Christianity will prevail over all and cover the earth. Let's pause here for a moment and survey this strange vision, that of a Christian world. What would it look like? As to this, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to us made careful searches and, and inquiries, and the spirit which was in them testified. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not lift up a sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Then on that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal flag for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. And he will lift up a flag for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel, and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fattened steer will be together, and a little boy will lead them. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord 
as the waters cover the sea. Imagine now, the fullness of time having arrived and these prophecies having been fulfilled. What a prospect is this. All is peace, quiet, and confidence forever. Here there is no sound of weaponry, no roar of battle, and no cloak rolled in blood. The enemy has come to an end in everlasting ruins. War is gone from the earth and there are no conflicts remaining. No person rising up against person. No country or city divided against itself and destroying itself. Civil unrest is at an end forevermore and no one is left who would destroy or hurt a neighbor. There's no longer any oppression that would make a wise person look foolish. No extortion to grind the face of the poor. No robbery or wrongdoing, no violent seizure of another's property or injustice of any kind, for all are content with what they have. In these ways, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. They've taken deep root and filled the land, truth sprouting from the heaven and righteousness looking down upon the earth. And along with righteousness or justice, mercy is also found. The earth is no longer full of cruelty, the Lord has destroyed both the bloodthirsty and malicious and the envious and vengeful person. If anyone were to be provoked, there's no one left who would return evil for evil. Even more, there's no one that does evil, not one, for all are innocent as doves. But being filled with all joy and peace and believing, and by one spirit all baptized into one body, they all love as brothers and sisters, and they are of one heart and soul. And not one of them claims that anything belonging to him is his own. There's not a needy person among them, for every person loves their neighbor as themselves. And all the people walk by one rule. In everything, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. It follows then that no unkind word can ever be heard among them. No quarrels, no contention of any kind, no complaining or evil speaking, but everyone opens their mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on their tongue. They're also incapable of fraud or deception. Their love is genuine and without pretense. Their words are always the honest expression of their thoughts, opening as a window into their hearts that whoever desires may look inside and see that all that dwells there are love and God. How can this be? Well, whomever the Almighty God reconciles to himself and wherever he reigns, God subjects all things to himself, causing every heart to overflow with love and every mouth to be filled with praise. Blessed are the people who are so situated because blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Arise, shine, says the Lord, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And humanity has come to know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. I have made peace your administrators and righteousness your overseers. Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. All your people are righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor will the moon give you light for brightness. But you will have the Lord as an everlasting light. And your God is your glory. Now that we've considered Christianity both in its earliest days and as it spread throughout the nations of the earth, I've only now to close this discussion with a plain and practical application. First, I would ask you, where does this Christianity now exist? Where in this world 
do these Christians live? The inhabitants of which country on earth are filled with the Holy Spirit in the ways that the scriptures have described? In which country are all inhabitants of one heart and of one soul, cannot endure any among them to lack anything, but continually give to every person according to his or her need, who one and all have the love of God filling their hearts and constraining them to love their neighbors as themselves, who have put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, who neither in word or deed offend against justice, mercy, or truth, but in every situation do to others as they would have done to them. Themselves. Can we really call any country a Christian country that does not answer to this description? In truth, we must confess together that we have never yet seen a Christian country upon the earth. I beg you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, if you consider me insane or a fool, then as a fool bear with me. It's necessary that someone should speak plainly to you. And it's all the more necessary at this time, for who knows if it is the last time? Who knows how soon the righteous judge may say, I will no longer hear the prayers of this people. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in this land, by their own righteousness, they could only save themselves. And who will speak plainly to you if I do not? Therefore, I must speak plainly to you, and I urge you by the living God, do not harden your hearts against receiving a blessing at my hands. Do not say in your hearts, Lord, do not send whom you have sent. Let me rather perish than be saved by this man. Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced of better things regarding you than what I'm about to say. But let me ask you then, in tender love and in the spirit of meekness, is this a Christian city? Are we considered as a community of people so filled with the Holy Spirit as to enjoy in our hearts and evidence in our lives the genuine fruits of the Spirit? Are all civil leaders, all principals and administrators of schools and their respective committees, not to speak of the inhabitants of the town, of one heart and one soul? Has the love of God been poured out within our hearts? Have we all the attitude in ourselves which was also in Christ Jesus? And do our lives evidence this claim? Are we holy as he who has called us is holy in all the things we say to and about each other? I beg you to be mindful, brothers and sisters, that we have not been considering novel or obscure notions. We've not been discussing debatable matters. All we've said has been describing the undoubted fundamental teachings of our common Christianity. And for your response to the message, I appeal to your own conscience guided by the word of God. Therefore, the one who is not convicted in his or her heart, let that person be unconcerned with what's been said. But before God and this congregation, I own myself to have been of the number, solemnly swearing to observe all these customs, which I then knew nothing of, and those statutes, which I did not so much as read over, either then or for some years later. What is perjury if this is not? But if it is, oh, what a weight of sin lies upon us, and doesn't the Most High see it? May it not be one of the consequences of this, that so many of us are a generation of triflers, triflers with God, with one another, and with our own souls, 
for how few of us spend a single hour in private prayer a week, how few of us have any thought of God in the normal course of our daily conversations, who of us in any degree acquainted with the work of God's Spirit understand his supernatural work in the souls of his people? Can any of us stand talk of the Holy Spirit in church? Would we not assume that anyone who spoke of the Holy Spirit was either deceiving us or deceiving themselves? In the name of the Lord God Almighty, I ask, what religion are we of? Even the talk of scriptural Christianity, as we've done today, we cannot bear it. We can hardly sit still for it. Oh, my brothers and sisters, what a Christian city is this. It's time for the Lord to act, for we have broken his law. For indeed, how probable is it, is it even possible that Christianity, scriptural Christianity as we've discussed it today, should again be the religion of this place? That all people among us from the least to the greatest should speak and live as people filled with the Holy Spirit. By whom would this Christianity be restored? Would it be restored by those who are in authority over us? Are they convinced that what I've described even is scriptural Christianity? Are they desirous for it to be restored? And would any consider it their sacred responsibility and duty before God to see it restored? And even if one in authority were to have this desire, who would have the influence and the proportionate power to actually bring it into effect? Perhaps some have tried, but look at with how little success. Shall Christianity be restored then by young unknown people? I'm not certain that any of our young would be willing to suffer for it. Wouldn't many of us older folks cry out against such a young person saying, by doing this, you're criticizing and condemning us? But I fear there is no danger of being in this situation because wickedness has overspread us like a flood. Whom then shall God send? The famine, the pestilence, the last messengers of God to a guilty land, or the sword? Please know, O Lord. Let us fall into your hand rather than into the hands of humans. Lord, save us or we will perish. Take us out of the mire that we might not sink. Oh, help us against these enemies, for human help is futile. Only unto you are all things possible. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those that, you, that are appointed for destruction and preserve us in the way that seems right to you, not as we will, but as you will. Amen.